Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for May 2022, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with author Scott Eyman about his new book, 20th Century Fox. From the New York Times bestselling author Scott Eyman, this is the story of one of the most influential movie studios in history. It was back in March 20th of 2019. That day marked the end of an era when Disney took ownership of the movie empire that was Fox. For almost a century before that historic date, 20th Century Fox was one of the preeminent producers of films, stars, and filmmakers. Its unique identity in the industry and place in movies history is unparalleled and one of the greatest stories to come out of Hollywood. This is a book about the films, the stars, the intrigue, and innovations of an iconic movie studio that was. I began my interview with Scott Eyman by asking him about the the two main people he focuses on in his new book, 20th Century Fox. Well, it's about uh, the founder of the Fox studio uh, in the beginning of the book, William Fox, whose actual name was Fuchs. Uh, He was a Hungarian immigrant who landed in New York as a small child, like most of the early generation of movie moguls did. They were all uh, Eastern European immigrants. And it's about Daryl Zanuck, who took Fox uh, in 1935 when it was kind of sucking wind and a moribund organization uh, and uh, 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 merged it with his 20th century pictures to form 20th century Fox and ran it like a Swiss watch for the next 21 years and then came back in the 60s to be chairman of the board for another six or seven years. So mm-hmm. it's basically a story of uh, an entertainment giant founded by uh, two people in two different generations, uh, one of whom could not adapt to changing times, William Fox, and the other who could adapt splendidly to changing times, Daryl Zanuck. So take us uh, into the life of William Fox. This man really grew up under, sounds like, very tough circumstances. Yeah, he was he was kind of a feral guy, uh, not necessarily pleasant, not a lot of laughs. Uh, he had a dismal childhood, as Louis B. Mayer did, uh, as a couple of the uh, moguls did. Uh, unlike them, he kind of absorbed the pain and then radiated it back out towards everybody around him. Uh, essentially, he was a real estate guy. Uh, he wasn't really a movie guy. He, he he bought one Nickelodeon. It did well. He invested the profits in another Nickelodeon and so on down the line. And much like Zucker, who was also who founded Paramount, co-founded Paramount Pictures, who was also a real estate guy, going into production was simply a means of a uh, uh, exerting quality control on the product and also getting another revenue stream coming in. As opposed to just taking your percentage off the top of the theaters, you also were able to take profits, theoretically, from the manufacture of the films that the theaters show. So it was a very, it was very logical, forward-thinking uh, uh, behavior on the part of Fox. So Fox was interested in money and in power and maybe not a lot of other things, and yet was responsible for some technical brilliance in films and some some of the greatest directors of all time worked for this man who who were some of these people absolutely uh well especially in the beginning fox films were slightly uh uh exploitation oriented uh for the first seven to ten years of the company he founded the company in, in uh, 1915. uh in the middle 20s he suddenly decided he wanted to be respectable he wanted to play with the big boys he wanted the critics on his side 
So he began spending a lot more money. He began importing and hiring the very best directors in the world, like F.W. Murnau, he brought over from Germany and gave him carte blanche to make Sunrise. John Ford was added to the uh, directorial staff. Frank Borzaghi was added to the directorial staff. Henry King, he had a very good eye for talent. And he would put up, uh, he had very little patience with people as he went on who didn't have talent. Uh, he wanted he wanted he wanted to see class on the screen the further he got into the 1920s and he was also extremely avaricious and extremely ambitious and basically he tried to corner the American movie industry uh, Marcus Lowe the founder of Lowe's Incorporated which was the parent company of MGM died and the Lowe's stock went up for uh, basically auction uh, and and Fox bought Lowe's Incorporated uh, which gave him control not just of his own studio, but of Lowe's Incorporated, uh, one of the largest theater chains in the country, as well as MGM, uh, his only main competition for, for supremacy in the movie business at that point. Uh, and he was undone by malignant fate because what happened was the stock market crashed and all these theaters and the companies that he paid uh, a top dollar for when the stock market was high were suddenly worth far less. Uh, and uh, kind of uh, the dominoes began to fall, and uh, the stock market crash was in uh, late 1929, and about a year later he was forced out of the company, which was plunging into Chapter 11. They never really went into Chapter 11. Uh, they managed to keep, but the water was always at their chins, basically until Zanuck took over in 1935. All right, let's talk here about Daryl Zanuck. What was his upbringing like, and, and what did he do before he formed uh, 20th Century Pictures? Zanuck, like Fox, was a lone wolf. Uh, he was born in Wahoo, Nebraska, a town very few people have ever heard of for very good reasons. <laughs> uh, he was not close to his father. He, he didn't like his father. His father was a drunk and kind of feckless, and his mother he didn't care for at all. Richard Zanuck told me that he only met his mother, his grandmother, two or three times. Uh, Richard Zanuck was Daryl Zanuck's son and a great producer in his own right. Yeah. Daryl basically uh, was an alpha male from uh, the time his wa mother's water burst. Uh, he was uh, he went to he went to war in World War One when he was uh, 16 years old, lied about his age. Uh, <laughs> and, then, well, and, and got thrown into the brig for uh, for being uh, obnoxious to commanding officers, got out and decided he wanted to be a writer. So he worked very hard the next few years of being a writer, sold a few things to the movies, fell in love with the movies, became a publicist at Warner Brothers, then became a screenwriter at Warner Brothers, and then rose to be head of production at Warner Brothers. Uh, that's in the early late 1920s, early 30s. So Daryl Zanuck's responsible for all those great gangster pictures with Jimmy Cagney and Edward G. Robinson, Public mm. Enemy, Little Caesar, and mm. musicals musicals like 42nd Street and Gold Diggers in 1932. Uh, magnificent movies. Then he got into a fight with Harry Warner about uh, Warner lying to uh, the staff of Warner Brothers. When Roosevelt got elected uh, and was inaugurated in 1933, they declared a bank holiday to stabilize the, uh, uh, the the financial industry, which was teetering at that point. And the movie industry instituted basically what amounted to a 50% cut on all employees who made more than a certain amount. And Zanuck promised that uh, as soon as the bank holiday was over, uh, full salaries would be restored. So the bank holiday lasted a couple of weeks, two or three weeks, and then it was uh, called off and everybody was supposed to get their money back 
with regular salaries back, but Harry Warner wanted to stall and wait a couple more weeks before he started paying people again. <laughs> and Zanuck, who never got along with Harry, he thought Harry was was cheap. He got along fine with most people didn't get along with Jack Warner, but Zanuck got along well with Jack Warner. He just didn't like Harry, and Harry didn't like him. So Zanuck felt that uh, his word had, that he'd given to his people uh, had been uh, broken by Harry Warner. And beyond that, he was working at a company that was a family business, and he wasn't a member of the family. So he decided to strike out on his own and founded 20th Century Pictures with uh, Joe Schenk uh, as the uh, uh, chairman and uh, financial backer, essentially. And 20th Century was very successful for two or three years, and so successful that they merged with Fox in 1935. Wow. So we get into this era, I mean, this classic Hollywood era. What, what, what kind of films are we talking about that, that uh, Zanuck uh, helmed? And, and was there a, a genre that, that, the, that he and 20th Century Fox specialized in, or would, did they do everything across the board? He did everything. He, he was running, <laughs> he was putting out 40 or 50 pictures a year well, in, the, in the 1940s. So you couldn't make one movie. He was making musicals with Betty Grable and Alice Faye. He was making family dramas like uh, How Green Was My Valley and The Grapes of Wrath and, and uh, 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 A Tree Grows in Brooklyn uh, that are still beloved today. Uh, he was making Westerns, The Gunfighter, My Darling Clementine, again with John Ford. Uh, he, he made a broad variety of pictures. He brought in Ernst Lubitsch to make Heaven Can Wait and Clooney Brown. Preston Sturgis he brought over. Uh, uh, he, he tried to class the place up every chance he got. Uh, and he, uh, to give him his due, he did not try to force huge talents into a, a, a Fox or Xanax cubbyhole. He let John Ford be John Ford. He let Lubitsch be Lubitsch because uh, he was very smart in, in that respect. There's no sense bringing in heavyweight talent if you're going to try to, you know, uh, trim their feathers. You know, you've mm -hmm. got to let them do what, what their forte is. Uh, basically, he ran the place like a Swiss watch. Uh, and, and, and won a lot of Oscars, All About Eve, uh, How Green Was My Valley, which beat out Citizen Kane for Best Picture. And there's a subset of people who think that it's a perfectly a justifiable decision. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if he had done nothing but uh, it, All About Eve, he, he would be, a, I mean, that, that film for me is just, yeah. it's one of the films that comes on TCM for the 875th time. It's like, oh, I'll just watch a minute of it. it it ended the first scene and there i am you know an hour and 45 minutes yeah. later and it's just it's just it's I genius is not even the right word for uh, i just don't understand how human beings could do something so perfect <laughs> artistically yeah. it's my it's he, just mind-blowing zanuck was a really good producer he 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 would work uh there was a very clear line of power at mgm everything was done by committee which is why MGM pictures are basically star vehicles, but they're not very few of them are actually great movies because they're they're committee pictures. You know, uh, the, the scripts were done by a lot of writers and they would take a scene from this version and a, another scene from this version and cobble together the script. So they're kind of good news, bad news. The stars are wonderful in MGM pictures, but the scripts aren't always good. And directors weren't very important at the studio. Zanuck, there was a very clear line of authority. Zanuck would have story meetings. Uh, with the producer and the scriptwriter of a given picture and the director when he was assigned. And he would outline exactly the prog progression of the script and what he wanted to see in the script and what he didn't want to see in the script. Everybody with the, the story notes would be typed up and distributed. There was no question about the direction the picture was going to go into. <laughs> it was very specific and very directed. And uh, once the script was approved by Zanuck, 
the director was supposed to direct it as written. Zanuck at that point backed off. He never went on a set uh, unless there was chaos, unless people were throwing, you know, a crockery at each other. Uh, the set was the director's prerogative and he never went on a set. And But as soon as the film was finished shooting, it was Zanuck who took responsibility for the edit and went through the rushes and, and dictated story notes and basically guided, uh, uh, rendered the director's input I wouldn't say irrelevant, but shall we say of secondary importance. So when did this golden period start to end? When, when, because this was all the de decline of films was all happening because of television, right? When, when, when was television, that? When, that tele when television hits in the late 1940s, it was like in the same way that when the computer industry hit 25 or 30 years ago, nobody had a, 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 an iPad. And then three years later, everybody has an iPad. Yeah. That's what television was like. In 1946, no one had a TV. In 1949, everybody had a TV. <sighs> and, and, and theater business begins to plummet. And I mean, really plummet. In between 1946 and 1953, 50% of the audience disappears. Whoa. That is a bloodletting. That's a... <sighs> that's an extinction event and you cannot it's what's happened with newspapers and magazines you simply it's not it's not survivable if unless you stop the bleeding so what zanuck did was uh first you did all the obvious things you try to keep your budgets as low as possible you you you, you cut shooting schedules as short as possible and when that still didn't work uh you then you give stuff that the audience can't get on television a little more sex, a little more violence, more technicolor. And then he bet big on Cinemascope, on changing the uh, the screen ratio. The screen ratio from from the beginning of cinema into the 1950s had been the square, basically. Right. 1.33, uh, a square picture. And Zanuck bet big on a picture that was two and a half times as wide as it was high. Because Cinerama, which had opened in 1952, uh, which was three to one, a ratio of three, three times as wide as it was high, which was three, uh, uh, three separate strips of film shown by three projectors. And Zanuck began a heavy, a heavy pitch to find out, to find an equivalent to Cinerama on one piece of film. And they came up with Cinemascope, which was done with a lens, a, sque a lens that would squeeze it when you're using it for the camera, and a lens that would where the optics were reversed, so it unsqueezed when it was put in the projector. Hmm. And he bet big on it, about $10 million of Fox's money in a space of 18 months or so. And the first uh, CinemaScope film uh, premiered at the end of 1953. And it was a spectacular success uh, and basically changed screen dimensions. Uh, Cinema, CinemaScope widescreen as a savior of the movie industry did not last very long. It lasted five or six years. And then the, the novelty wore off as all novelties do. Yeah. But it stopped the bleeding. Widescreen stopped the bleeding because every other studio, once Cinema CinemaScope was a success, came up with their version. Uh, Paramount had VistaVision, mm. which is they shot De DeMille's Ten Commandments in VistaVision. Uh, other studios simply uh, uh, rented CinemaScope. MGM rented CinemaScope. Uh, uh, Warner Brothers rented uh, uh, CinemaScope as well for Star is Born, the Judy Garland version. Uh, at $25,000 a picture. So Zanuck ultimately, made, Fox made money on CinemaScope. Uh, uh, and it stopped the bleeding. It stopped the bleeding. There, there still continued to be a diminishment, a gradual diminishment of audience over time, as there still is. I mean, the pandemic has cut theater attendance in half from what it was before. And whether that comes back, who knows. 
uh, because a lot of people simply sit at home and watch the streaming services. Right. Me included. Just bought yeah. like the, the nicest TV TV we've ever had. And suddenly it's wow, this is um, I've gotten kind of used to this. And I'm a yeah. big movie goer, too, in, in sure. theaters. And it's uh Oh, yeah, yeah. I, it, I, it, it's worrisome, certainly worrisome about uh, how and if people will return to theaters in, in the way that they used to. Well, so what happens from the 60s until the present? When it is- gets a gutful of the changing uh, 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 mores of 50s Hollywood. Uh, he didn't mind the, the business with CinemaScope. That was a, that appealed to the gambler instinct in him. Uh, what he did mind was actors taking uh, production responsibilities, but not taking financial responsibilities of having to cut actors in on the profits who didn't necessarily make any financial contribution to the picture uh, and of, of, uh, of, of actors becoming directors. He, he lashed out at John Wayne for directing a picture. He lashed out at actors for producing pictures, people like Burt Lancaster. Uh, he just didn't like the way the industry was going because in the way the industry was going was diminishing his own uh, 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 ability to be peremptory in the production of movies, to make decisions, because he had to deal with all these other people who saying, gimme, 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 gimme. And he wanted to do that. And also he was getting middle age crazy. He was in his 50s at this point, he had been working 70 and 80 hour weeks for 25 years and he was burning out. So he decided to quit Fox and go into independent production. And he went to Paris, uh, didn't tell his wife, didn't invite his wife, <laughs> no. went, went to Paris uh, with, with a series of uh, exotic and, and quite beautiful mistresses uh, that he tried to turn into movie stars, none of whom made it, uh, but had a good time, had a really good time. Made one or two good pictures, made three or four lousy pictures. Uh, in the early 60s, Fox is in terrible trouble with Cleopatra, the oh. Elizabeth Taylor film that was uh, went uh, tripled, quadrupled its budget <sighs> and basically uh, came very close to bankrupting the studio, not because of anything intrinsic on the screen, but because it was incompetently produced. They kept shifting locations. We're going to make it in London. No, we're going to make it in Hollywood. No, 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 we'll make it in Italy. No, we'll make it in Hollywood. No, Italy. And so they kept, it was insane. It was just insane. And Zanuck saw, you know, from his distance in Paris, uh, even though he's not directly involved, saw that what was going on with the company and was slowly going crazy. You know, because he could see that it was being run by incompetents who didn't understand how to make a movie. You make your decision based on the best evidence you've got at the time and you stick with it. You can't you can't keep shifting production from one continent to another without planning for it because it, it just blows everything. And everybody's going into golden time and triple salary because you're going for far over budget. And that's what happened with Cleopatra. And the picture was lousy. Let's face it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he comes riding to the rescue uh, and they're happy to have him back. He's just coming off the longest day, the best picture he made as an independent producer, story of D-Day, mm-hmm. and which was successful financially and critically. Uh, and he comes right to the rescue and installs his son, Richard, as at a production. And Zanuck becomes Richard, uh, Daryl rather, becomes uh, chairman of the board. And Richard had been groomed for the job since he was a high school in high school. Uh, mm-hmm. And he becomes an extremely successful producer over the years. The first picture out of the uh, hopper of the new Zanuck regime at Fox is Sound of Music. Well, that takes care of a lot of problems. It sure does. That takes care of a lot of immediate problems. Unfortunately, it was the most expensive success in, in film history because not only Fox, but every other studio thought this was the answer. 
And they everybody goes to make Goodbye Mr. Chips and the remake of Lost Horizon and The Great Waltz and uh, ju uh, just a nonstop string of disastrous musicals that no one wanted to see, including Fox that made Star with Julie Andrews. Uh, oh, because what Sound of Music turned out to be was the last hurrah for that kind of movie. Yeah. The audience was dying off or not interested in going to movies that often. So they were making all these movies for an audience that no longer existed. Paint Your Wagon, Camelot. I mean, they just kept coming down the pike. And no, and they're all, they were all terrible and nobody went to see any of them. So by the end of the 70s, basically Fox is kind of back where it was uh, during the Cleopatra phase. <laughs> and at that point, Zanuck is beginning to get a little dementia. He's beginning to get a little senile. And he begins to get paranoid about Richard that Richard's gonna uh, try to cut the ground out from under him in 20th Century Fox. He regarded his personal fiefdom, his personal creation, which in fact it was. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it begins, they begin a, a, a corporate battle and ultimately he fires his own son from 20th Century Fox. A wow. few months after that, he's kicked upstairs to emeritus position and removed because he's becoming increasingly senile and clearly uh, can't function very well anymore. And he went back home to his long-suffering wife in Palm Springs, and she took care of him until he died. Wow, wow. And then what was the fate of 20th Century Fox? It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, they and got bought by Disney, Disney right. three years ago, three years ago. Disney now owns uh, uh, Lucasfilm, Pixar. Uh, they got a piece of Marvel. They got Marvel. They own Marvel. And they also own 20th Century Fox. Uh, and Fox was a good was a good buy for them because there's a huge catalog, not just a product for streaming service, uh, but a lot of stuff that can be remade or repurposed. You know, oh. it's like Nightmare Alley, which is opening this week. Oh right, yeah. Which is a remake of a famous dare a uh, Tyrone Power vehicle from 1947 that Zanuck produced against his better judgment, I might add. He didn't want to make the movie, but he owed Tyrone Power, who was uh, a good guy and had been. Uh, a good soldier at Fox for over 10 years at that point. And Power wanted to make a movie for himself. And Zanuck let him make it, even though he knew that it wasn't commercial at all. Uh, because Power's audience didn't want to see him that way, playing a cheap a grifter. Uh, but Power wanted to do it. And of course, nowadays, it's, it's one of the three or four pictures that people want to see Tyrone Power in. You know, right. but it didn't, it didn't help. And he lost a half a million dollars in 1947. Oh, it did. So, huh. so Zanuck was right uh, uh, in one sense. In another sense, he was wrong. Mm. And Ford versus Ferrari was was the last or one of the well, last. It wasn't pictures the from... last. It no. wasn't the last uh, picture, but I think it's the one. It's the picture that was came at the very tail end of 20th Century Fox independence that would have pleased Zanuck the most because it had all the Zanuck qualities. It had a, a, a taut drama. The stakes were personal as well as uh, a public. Uh, it was about two men uh, butting heads, uh, but then finally uniting in a common goal to try to win uh, win the Formula One championship. Uh, it's a true story, and it was beautifully produced and directed by James Mangold. And it's just a movie that had all of Xanax attributes and uh, uh, none of his deficiencies. You know, and it's it's just a movie that Xanax would have loved. And I love the film, and it is one of the films that. You got to see it in the theater to, to, oh, yeah. to really enjoy it. It's at its best because it's an auto, you know, auto racing, you, you, you know, when it gets reduced to the TV set, even if you got a big TV, yeah. it ain't the same. And it was a really good picture. And uh, Zanuck would have just stood there and applauded that movie. So that was kind of the, the, the perfect capper to end the book on.
as, yeah. as even though uh, Disney was in the process of buying the studio at that point. And final question, Scott, I know it's impossible, but pick, pick one. What's one or one or two or three of your very favorite films from 20th Century Fox of all time? I love How Green Is My Valley. I love mm-hmm. Grapes of Wrath because they're both deeply realistic pictures of family anguish that still managed to be uh, uh, hopeful and not despondent about uh, 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 the characters in the future. Uh, and that's a tough knack. That's a tough twist to pull off, you know. But he understood, Zanuck understood uh, 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 things like you can't send the, the, the public out wanting to slash their wrists. You know, you've got to give them something. 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 <laughs> and, and he figured out ways to do that, especially with Grapes of Wrath, which, let's face it, as a novel, is uh, almost a complete downer. I mean, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no hopeful ending for the Joes. Uh, in, in the novel of Grapes of Wrath. But Zanuck figured out a way to end it on a note of hope that was not that did not necessarily violate the spirit of the novel. And also, even though he, he, he didn't like Henry Fonda personally and Henry Fonda <laughs> loathed him personally, he had, the, he had the smarts to realize that Fonda was the only actor in Hollywood who could play Tom Joe. To, uh, uh, to give him the part, he demanded Fonda sign a seven-year contract with Fox. And Fonda <laughs> never... Never forgave him for that. Never. <laughs> Fonda took that to his grave. He just couldn't stand Zerl Zanuck. <laughs> wow. Even Insider though the stuff. part, even though the part is that is is Fonda's signature part, uh, God, but he still yes. thought he didn't know if it was worth trading seven years of his career for. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for May 2022. Our interview was with Scott Iman about his book, 20th Century Fox, Daryl F. Zanuck, and the creation of the modern film studio. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. She's a 20th Century Fox. She's a 20th Century Fox. No tale. Yeah.